let's have a quick break to talk to you about Policy Genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank account. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where Policy Genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how Policy Genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award-winning agents will walk you step by step through the entire process. But the best thing about Policy Genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies, and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Live from Liverpool, the Dark Paranormal. Hi everyone, this is a little bonus episode to whet your appetite for the season premiere of season 6, which airs next Friday, the 4th of March. The episode you're going to hear today is taken from our Dark Bites Patreon-only podcast, where we focus on true paranormal experiences that, for one reason or another, did not make the main show. Today's story is one of my personal favourites. There are no sound effects in this. It's just a story told with background music, but an absolutely terrifying one that I'd personally not heard about until I came across the book in question. It's definitely a turn the lights low, put the fire on and get cosy sort of tale. And I believe a perfect appetizer before we start season 6 next week. Of course, as I've stated, the season 6 premiere will be on Friday the 4th of March, across all platforms. But of course, our Patreons will receive early access to that episode before anyone else. On that topic, I'm exceptionally thankful to say we've had a raft of Patreon sign-ups over the downtime. And before we get to the bonus Dark Bites episode today, I'm just going to take a small moment or two to thank those people. Adrian Whipple, William Morris, Bethany Grace Woodward, Phil Seddon, Joshua Thompson, Alistair Davies, Elizabeth, Deborah Cornfield, Anna Harris, Natalie Parsons, Alicia Mauer, Colton Gramberg, Jace, Dan, Eleanor J.B., Kerry Whitehead, Rebecca Graham, Melissa Seward, 
Erin von Olnhausen, Johan Gormley, Sophie Hillcote, Paul Tompkins, Chad Spain, Mindy Snyder, Samantha, Jeffrey Thiel, Anne Carter, Georgia Seals, Samantha Nestlehut, Jay Swickheimer, Alexander Lund Moller Christofferson, Aaron Elvar Eglison, Chelsea Holland, Yoni, Patricia, Heidi Brashear, Hannah Kelly, Jennifer Dyson, and Karen Brett. I guess that's what happens when you take a few weeks between seasons. Thank you so much, guys. I hope you enjoy the early releases and, of course, the Dark Bites episodes. If you want to sign up to Patreon and get early access to the premiere of Season 6, head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. But for now, before we focus solely on Season 6, this tale is one which is less jumpy, but a fantastic paranormal experience nonetheless. This is the Dark Bites episode... A Diabolical Intervention. Live from Liverpool, the dark paranormal, dark bites. Hello, Patreons, and welcome back. To Dark Bites, the weekly Patreon-only show where we take a look at some stories that for whatever reason didn't quite make the main show. But that doesn't mean in any way, shape or form that they're any less terrifying. What we have for today's show is a bit special. What you may not know about me is I love to spend time in second-hand bookshops, looking around at some of the occult stuff especially. Now, luckily for me, just within an hour's drive from where I live, I could be in North Wales, or I could be up to Lancaster, or past Manchester, meaning I have a selection of second-hand bookshops at my disposal. Some of them are a little bit more quirky than others, and it's in one of those bookshops in North Wales, where I came across one of the most specific paranormal books I've ever seen. It was printed in 1956 and, at the time, cost 13 shillings. Obviously, shillings are no longer in use. I don't believe this book had any more prints either. And it's a book solely about Catholic clergy and their experiences with the paranormal. Now, there's one particular story within this book that I'm going to read on today's episode, which I think gives some of the most chilling descriptions of paranormal experiences that I've ever heard, and I believe that you're likely to hear too. Now please bear in mind that the style of language used in this story is very much of its day. It's beautifully written, but sometimes can be a bit long-winded, so you will have to bear with me. But believe me, it's worth it for the descriptions of the paranormal entities that they encounter. The book's author is Shane Leslie, an Irish investigator into the paranormal. And the story is called A Diabolic Intervention. The following story is interesting in that the chief events described are of recent date. Of course, for the listener to the show, this is in the 1950s. And are fully documented with statements made at the time by many of the witnesses who underwent various experiences. Moreover, at least in the earlier stages of the alleged manifestations... Individual witnesses were unaware that others had previously seen, heard, or felt anything untoward. 
the case is unsatisfying in that any attempt to explain it in scientific terms, to suggest the cause or purpose of the manifestations, or to draw a moral from them seems impossible. The refusal of most of the participants to allow their identity to be disclosed and the legal obligation of concealing that of the property affected enforces the strictest of anonymity. At the same time, the present writer has had the opportunity not only of reading the official dossier of the case, which compromises documents covering a period of over two years, but of cross-questioning a number of witnesses to what seems to have been an authentic intervention in human affairs by a spirit, and an evil spirit at that. The scene is a house in the English countryside, a rather large house according to modern ideas, standing in its own grounds with over a dozen bedrooms. It presents anything but that aspect of mystery and gloom traditionally associated with ghost stories. Built on a medieval foundation with traces of Tudor architecture in the cellars, the greater part of the house, added by the succeeding generations, is Georgian in style, with large windows, light, airy rooms, wide passages with no dark corners, and is lit abundantly with electricity. The garden is large and modern, with flower beds and lawns, in one of which, somewhat over close to the house, there is a small but deep pond, presumably fed by underground springs. It's believed to be an old quarry, the stone from which may have been used for building the original house. It features later in the tale, though the earlier manifestations seemed at the time to have no connection with it. At the date the story begins, a newly married couple, both Catholics, owned the house which had been in continuous occupation previous to their purchase. They had lived in it happily for about ten years. No rumour was heard in the countryside that there was anything queer about the house, nor is that part of England greatly given to ghost stories, or boggles, or pixies, or anything of that type. One day in midsummer, a young man staying in the house called on a local doctor, asking for a full medical examination. As both his appearance and the necessary test showed him to be in bounding health, the doctor asked bluntly for an explanation. This was given, and, after promises of professional secrecy, put into writing there and then. It appears that on a sunny June day, just after lunch, the young man and the lady of the house were walking through a room leading by French windows to the lawn, when the young man suddenly fainted. There was a commotion, and when he came to, he let it be understood that his heart might be slightly strained. This explanation was accepted on his promise to go and see a doctor at once. The truth was quite otherwise. He said that on glancing back over his shoulder as he followed his hostess out of the house, he'd seen close behind him a figure with its hands covering its face. Since he was obviously of a decidedly husky masculine type, the doctor, who knew him well, suggested that this was insufficient reason for the patient's faint. The young man agreed, saying that really why he had fainted was a strong intuition that should the figure withdraw its hands and disclose its face, he would inevitably die of shock. 
No hint of this unpleasant event was given at the time to anyone apart from the doctor who took down the statement. One evening, while it was still broad daylight about two months later, a housemaid, going about her legitimate business in a room, actually the same room in which the young man had his experience and fainted, was surprised to see by the window opposite a figure which for a moment she took to be that of the owner of the house who she'd just seen elsewhere. On the instant she recognised this figure to be that of a stranger. It seemed to her to move slowly through a solid wall and disappear. Being a woman of considerable courage and character, she said nothing to anyone at the time, but she did tell her doctor whom she visited the next day and who happened to be the same doctor to whom the young man had previously related his story. Under a similar pledge of professional secrecy, the housemaid also agreed to make a written declaration, which included a detailed description of the figure, as did the story of the young man. The two descriptions tally, though the housemaid felt no undue sense of fear since, to use her own words, it did not seem as though the figure was interested in me. The figure seen by the young man and the housemaid in broad daylight was opaque, in the sense that light did not pass through it. Nevertheless, it did not give a three-dimensional impression, while its outline was curiously vague. Both witnesses saw the figure for a few seconds only, but under cross-questioning proved to be excellent observers. The figure seemed to be draped or composed of a dirty brown substance, if substance is the right word to use. It cast no shadow, nor were any feet visible. When it moved, the figure seemed to ripple or undulate in a manner difficult to describe, as though the undulations took place within the substance itself. Neither observer saw a face, but the clear suggestions of hands described by the young man as covering the face showed them to be apparently of the same substance as the rest of the figure, or its other coverings or draperies, or whatever word can best describe the apparent surface seen. The figure was somewhat less than the medium height of a man, and gave a squat and ungainly impression. In both cases, it seemed to be hunchbacked or hunched up, whether still or in movement. These are the only two occasions during the whole two years and more on which this, or for that matter any, figure was seen by anyone. On the other hand, from that time onwards, various other curious events took place in the house with increasing frequency. For example, a priest staying in the house was awakened by heavy knocks on his bedroom door. He turned on the light, sat up in bed and said, Come in! The door did not open, but, as the priest put it himself in the written declaration he'd done a few days later, something did come in, accompanied by a sense of abject terror. This something was invisible, but not inaudible. For two whole hours, it was as though a large animal perambulated the room, grunting and gasping, paying no attention to the Reverend Father's adjurations to depart. The priest said nothing to the owners of the house at the time, 
again, an army officer visiting the house for a weekend, and who incidentally was not sleeping in the room previously occupied by the priest, was found to have departed before breakfast on Sunday morning, leaving a lame note of excuse and apology for his host. On being asked by a mutual friend a day or two later why he behaved so strangely, the army officer told in confidence an extraordinary story. This too was committed to paper. It appeared that on going to bed on the Saturday evening at about half past eleven, he had just turned out his bedside lamp when he suddenly felt fingers stroking his face. He naturally turned on the lamp again at once, but nothing was to be seen. Thinking that he was the victim of a delusion, he turned out the lamp once more, when immediately the same thing happened again. Yet again, the fingers stroked his face for the third time when the light was extinguished. This was unpleasant, but the officer declared he was only a little disturbed and in no sense terrified. He got up, searched the room after turning on all the lights, and, feeling anything but sleepy, began to read a book in bed. He soon found, however, that he could not concentrate on what he was reading. Terrible ideas, wholly foreign to his nature, pressed in upon him. These gradually developed into an urge to kill himself for no logical reason save a black wall of hopeless despair. For an hour or more he fought this notion with common sense. There was nothing in his normal life or mind even faintly justifying so dreadful and desperate an act. But the idea grew like a thickening fog. There came a desire that he should go and drown himself in the pond outside the house, which up to that moment he'd hardly noticed. The officer stated that at one moment he found himself actually climbing out of the bedroom window. Suddenly, all pressure was removed, leaving the unfortunate victim so weak and shaken that he felt he could not face remaining in the house. On another occasion, the lady of the house and a woman friend were going upstairs to bed having turned out the lights on the bottom floor. The stairs themselves were brilliantly lit and yet both women heard heavy footsteps coming up behind them, which they described as like those of a man wearing carpet slippers soaked in water. Whilst they shrank against the wall, the footsteps passed up the stairs beside them and disappeared down a lighted corridor. Nothing was seen. This event, which took place some twelve months after the figure had twice been seen in daylight, made it no longer possible, or even desirable, to maintain secrecy. The owner of the house, who had himself experienced nothing and heard no stories of alleged mysterious happenings, sought the counsel of two friends, one of whom happened to be the doctor who had been consulted by the two witnesses of the brown, hunchbacked figure. Permission was obtained to disclose their stories, and by one means and another there came to light not only the experience of the priest and the army officer described above, but a number of others which different persons associated with the house had undergone at various times during the previous months. Amongst other experiences described was that of a visitor who slept in yet a different room, and who, like the priest, had been woken up by a heavy rapping on his door. He did not bid the visitor come in, but switched on his bedside light, and was astonished to see 
the hearth rug fly up the chimney. This somewhat ludicrous performance lost its humour when the bewildered observer remembered clearly that the fireplace had no hearth rug. He got up, opened the door and found nothing in the passage. He then examined the chimney, which was painted white, and, having assured himself that no sort of optical illusion would account for what he'd seen, he noticed that the register was already in place and the chimney thus completely closed. Several people made declarations of being woken up in the middle of the night by knockings and one other daylight experience was recorded, though this took place after the private inquiry into the business had been set on foot. The owner of the house, having up to that date experienced absolutely nothing unusual, was engaged one morning hammering a large nail into the wall of the staircase for the purpose of hanging a big family portrait. He ascended a few steps of a solid, new and firm stepladder, set squarely on a broad, flat landing. A friend standing below had his hand lightly resting on the stepladder and was looking at the hammering operation taking place only some four feet above his head. The friend was startled to see the owner of the house apparently throw the hammer violently back over his shoulder and make a decidedly athletic and dangerous backwards leap from the step to the stairs. Beyond a slight vibration inseparable from an exercise of this type, the stepladder did not budge and the friend, after ensuring that the owner of the house was unhurt, naturally asked him what he thought he was playing at. The latter said that he was just about to hit the nail with the hammer for the first time whilst holding the six-inch wire nail, and he felt the hammer wrenched out of his right hand by some terrific force. His subsequent jump had been purely instinctive. There is no need in this account of apparent hauntings to catalogue the many varied and odd experiences which came to light during the inquiry, some of which duplicate the experiences of others, while some were rejected as of doubtful accuracy or authenticity. One other story must, however, be told. Although it was not recorded at the time, it was recollected about three months before the first appearance of the figure. A child sleeping in the house kept on having bad dreams, which were foreign to the child's nature, and complained to its mother that mice ran over its face after it was dark. There were no mice in the room the child occupied, though traps were set as an assurance. When the child was moved to a different room in a different part of the house, both dreams and mice ceased. This recollection is of particular interest in connection with the later recorded story of the army officer who felt fingers stroke his cheek in the dark, and also in that the particular room of which the child complained had not previously been slept in. Research shown that for the last 30 years, and probably longer, it was only used as a storeroom. Once all these stories were put together and examined, a few possibly significant facts seemed to emerge. No trace existed in living memory of anything untoward prior to the bad dreams and mice of the child, after which the inexplicable events had taken place with increasing frequency. Insofar as concerned manifestations at night, it was at once apparent that, whenever the time had been recorded by the witness, it was almost exactly two o'clock in the morning. 
So far as could be ascertained, the same hour fitted the experiences of the others who had not thought to look at the clock. Again, no manifestation was recorded or reported by night or day, save on one or two days either side of a full moon. Though what such a terrestrial event could have to do with the apparent spiritual disturbances was clear to no one at the time. However, the priest who eventually exorcised the ghost, as recorded shortly, said that he had once came across a similar phenomena and was impressed by the coincidence. Despite the varied nature of the manifestations, it was found that all had taken place in only one part of the house. Curiously, the newest part, where every room, with the one possible exception, the staircase and all passages, were connected with at least one sinister event. The possible connection was noted between the child's tale of mice and fingers stroking a face in the dark, together with the impressed ideas of suicide, wet feet and despair, for there were stories of dreams and depressions available other than those recorded here. This inquiry, which was kept as confidential as possible, and of which for practical reasons the servants in the house learned nothing, with the exception of the maid who had seen the figure some 18 months earlier, but had had no other unpleasant experience, was interrupted by a terrible event. One afternoon, another maid quietly put down her dustpan and brush, walked straight out of the house, and jumped into the pond on the lawn. She was dead when her body was recovered. The subsequent inquest, both official and unofficial, disclosed no sort of reason why this poor woman should have committed suicide. Her life contained an apparent sorrow or dreaded secret, and though the official verdict of suicide while the balance of her mind was upset received some support from vague stories of a far-off relation from home, a private inquiry never identified that story. This sad occurrence naturally caused talk in the village, but without producing any stories of ghosts or hauntings. At the same time, an elderly farmer of the neighbourhood, whose grandfather had been the village schoolmaster, hinted one day to the owner of the house that he might find the record office interesting. Papers in the record office were duly searched and the Inquisition's post-mortem for the hundred disclosed a remarkable set of affairs. It appeared that from sometime during the reign of James I, there had been irregular periods of a year or so during which a shocking number of suicides had taken place in or on the edge of the quarry pond in the garden. These batches of suicides were separated from one another by irregular periods of up to 50 or 60 years during which nothing happened. There was no regularity of length of any of the periods or in the number of suicides which took place in any group. It was noticed, however, that, for example, a farmer living seven or eight miles away, who had evidently decided to take his own life for certain reasons of his own, had walked eight miles to the edge of the pond and shot himself there with a gun instead of doing so on his own farm. Others had hung themselves on trees near the pond, while others seemed to have jumped into its waters. Armed with these sinister facts and the full documentation of recent happenings, the owner of the house, a Catholic, as had been mentioned earlier, consulted the bishop of the diocese, who at first adopted an attitude of reserve until he studied the dossier 
Immediately thereafter, he sent for the owner of the house and with the utmost gravity told him that he had decided on the evidence to use his Episcopal powers and permit a full, solemn exorcism of the house. For those who have little knowledge of such matters, it may here be mentioned that permission for a solemn exorcism of this kind is very rarely granted. In fact, it's not easy to lay the hands on the text or directions of the rite. The priest authorised by the bishop has to be specially selected or approved by him. Before performing the rite, which involves a mass to be said anywhere in or near the haunted precinct, as the priest may choose, the latter is bound to observe an absolute fast for 24 hours beforehand, during which period he must be as far as possible in a state of prayer, in accordance with the statement of our Lord that this evil will only be removed with prayer and fasting. The Episcopal authority allows the selected priest to perform the rite more than once for the same haunting, in the event the first exorcism apparently proves ineffective. This is in accordance with the apostolistic command to go on praying and not to faint. It also indicates the Church's recognition that we know little and are indeed not meant to know much in this world about the affairs of the next. It is not a question of science, but of faith. The main part of the exorcism consists, after special prayers, of a command in the name of our Lord to the Spirit to betake himself to the place appointed. The language used is terrific in its authority, unlike the usual quiet dignity of the church's rites. Before the exorcism could take place, further experiences were recorded. The witness knew about the previous phenomena, being a member of the unofficial committee of the inquiry. But, though a frequent visitor to the house, he had never previously experienced anything for himself. For these reasons, he was personally inclined to disregard his own stories being purely subjective. Ecclesiastical authority thought otherwise and directed that it should be included in the dossier. This observer spent a night in the house over an Easter weekend. He occupied a bedroom in the newer portion, but one in which no phenomena had been recorded at that time. On the Saturday evening, he went to bed shortly after midnight after a cheerful party and, according to his own account, with no thought of the hauntings in mind. He went to sleep but was woken sometime during the night with the notion that somebody had called him by name. The impression was so strong that he got out of bed and opened the door into the passage, although the call was not repeated and the whole house seemed quiet. He did not turn on the lights, since the room was nearly as bright as day with moonlight streaming in through the uncurtained windows. The witness observes that this was not until the next morning when he remembered a connection between Easter and the full moon. After a moment or two of looking up and down the passage, he went back to bed, glancing at his watch as he did so. The time shown was exactly two minutes past three. This is of particular interest, since on using this argument to convince others that the affair was unconnected with the ghost, he found his argument turned against himself, since he'd forgotten that summertime was in force, so that the true Greenwich Mean Time was two minutes past two, and his awakening must have taken place almost exactly at two o'clock. This witness's statement records that he lay down in bed and tried to turn over, preparing to go to sleep again, when... To his great disquiet, he found himself paralysed. Not only was he unable to turn over, 
but he could not move his head or his limbs, although he found he could open and shut his eyes. His first thought that he must have somehow ricked his back or done himself some other physical damage. Before he could decide what to do, if anything, whether to call out for help or wait to see if the apparent paralysis would pass, he became aware, without sight or sound, that something indescribable, a personality, but one utterly repugnant and hostile, was arriving from a very great distance at a very great speed. The thing seemed to arrive, and the witness confesses that he was frankly terrified. Invisible and inaudible, though it remained, the thing seemed nevertheless in some way to dart at the witness. Whereupon something else, of which the witness had in no way been conscious of at the time, seemed to intervene and throw the first thing off. The witness states that he prayed hard and went on doing so, not once but many times. The unpleasant thing hovered round, seemed to make sudden darts at the witness, only to be repulsed each time by the intervention of the other thing. This was very unpleasant, and went on until suddenly the witness heard a cock crow. The phenomena ceased instantly. The witness, finding he could now move, got up and looked at his watch. Three hours had elapsed, the sun was rising, but he did not go to bed again although all sense of fear had left him, so that until called officially that morning, he slept peacefully in a chair. Discovering that his mattress was wringing wet with sweat, that had poured out of him during his ordeal. The exorcism was duly performed, the selected priest being one who had made a certain study of alleged occult happenings. He chose to say the mass in the room wherein the child had complained of the mice, giving as his reason, which he insisted must be taken as purely experimental, that the child's experience were possibly the earliest of the series, and secondly that the room itself might be, in picturesque terms, the gateway of the monster, and the fact that any human had slept there might have provided the means of unlocking the gate. In view of the apparent connection between the strength of the manifestations and the lunar cycle, the priest elected to say his mass and perform the rite on a day when the moon was full. Nothing happened during the mass or the rite, which naturally took place in the morning before breakfast. That night, however, two people sleeping in the house in rooms overlooking the lawn where the pond was were woken by a noise which they likened to the howling of dogs, apparently coming from the lawn outside. The moon was full and the night was cloudless. When it was apparent that there was nothing visible on the lawn which could be held responsible for the sounds, though the spot they were apparently coming from could be identified with certainty. The time was exactly two o'clock in the morning. As the watchers gazed in horror at the empty lawn, the sound of howling began to recede in jerks, as though something was being thrust farther and farther away. It faded into the distance and could no longer be heard, and since that date there has been no trouble in the house. And that, my dear Patreons, is the story I know at times it was a bit tough going, but I think some of the descriptive pieces within that tale are second to none. The idea of seeing a spectre hiding its own face with its hands is bone-chilling, and the description of a child innocently saying 
mice were running across its face. When a grown man recognises those mice as fingers from a ghostly hand. Also, there's interesting little facets of the story too, such as I've never personally heard of a tale where the lunar cycle can be responsible for bringing something forth. And also, of course, a lot of you will have noticed that in this particular story, which comes from the 1950s, 2am is seen as the witching hour, as opposed to the 3 o'clock that we all associate it with today. All in a truly amazing and deeply interesting tale. Well, thank you once more for joining me here on Dark Bites. Stay safe and I'll speak to you next time.